You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, early afternoon to our friends and colleagues at uh, UC Berkeley, and uh, late afternoon to those of us uh, in the Midwest. Uh, and welcome to uh, this uh, joint lecture. Uh, my name is Dave McDonald. I'm a, uh, a professor of history in the part at the University of Wisconsin Madison. It's me for the pleasant duty introducing my friend and colleague and today's speaker, Francine Hirsch, who is currently the Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History. Uh, for the in the likely unlikely event that you're not acquainted with Hirsch's profile, I can tell you that she uh, earned her uh, doctorate at Princeton, working with uh, Laura Engelstein and uh, Steve Kotkin, and joined us here in Madison at the in Department of History in 1999 after having taught for a year in Binghamton, New York. Uh, in that time, she has taught a variety of uh, undergraduate and graduate courses on uh, Soviet history, but more recently and unsurprisingly, the history of human rights and its uh, in his career, especially in post-war Europe, uh, or post-war modern world. Uh, in, 19, in 2005, Cornell University Press published her Empire of Nations, uh, which was really a uh, institutional and intellectual and social history of the shaping of nationalities policy in the Soviet Union or in Russia and the Soviet Union in the late imperial period through uh, its uh, the sort of realization that it eventuated in, in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, this book, won the uh, American Historical Association's Herbert Baxter Adams Prize and AAASS as it then was, a prestigious uh, Lucinich Prize, among other awards. Now, last year, on the occasion of today's uh, get-together, uh, Oxford University Press published uh, her most recent book, Soviet Judgment in Nuremberg, which, is, which uh, is a marked methodological departure from her prior work in many ways. Uh, to prepare this book, she had to immerse herself in a rich and often self-mythologizing literature on the Nuremberg trial, but also in the, uh, in the conceptual architecture of international legal history and international history. Uh, and she dealt with a very different cast of characters than the, uh, than the anthropologists and ethnographers that they interested her in her first book. Uh, and also she has to deal with a much more focused and detailed and contingent situation uh, that we, uh, in which we see the contours of the emerging Cold War taking shape as uh, both the uh, US and the USSR uh, were taking their place as rival hegemons in that era's new world order. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It wears its exhaustive learning lightly. Uh, she has canvassed archives everywhere from Moscow to the flesh plots of Laramie, Wyoming, and uh, many places in between. And you get an interesting perspective, a, a revealing perspective on the operations of the, uh, the Soviet state order and the Soviet statecraft at the very highest level. Stalin, Molotov, Tikhonozov, uh, uh, and other very prominent figures from the late uh, Stalin era uh, figure very prominently in this account. Uh, but Fran uh, also does so in a, a language that, uh, while it speaks to historians and to historiography, is also. Uh, she has a language and a voice in this uh, work that makes it highly accessible to that uh, treasured general reader that the uh, that presses so, uh, so want to recruit. Uh, and 
having said that, please remember that we're entering gift giving season. And even if you can't see, <laughs> you can present them with this, uh, with this wonderful work as a gift. Um, but you did not come here to hear me uh, talk about uh, Fran. Uh, so why don't I yield the floor, or in this case, the screen to her, and we'll embark on, uh, on her presentation. Thank you all. Thank you, Fran. Oh, wow. Well, well it's thank, thank you. It's, um, it's really a, a pleasure to be here with you today, where, wherever we all are, right? Um, I wanted to thank the Title VI National Resource Center for sponsoring this talk and Zach Kelly for organizing logistics, um, my colleague Jennifer Tischler for agreeing to moderate today, and my, my wonderful colleague David McDonald as well for that really nice introduction. So, um, so to begin, 75 years ago tomorrow, on November 20th, 1945, the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union came together at the Palace of Justice in occupied Germany to try 22 former Nazi leaders, Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, Johann von Ribbentrop, and others for conspiracy, war crimes, crimes against peace, and crimes against humanity. The commemorations of the Nuremberg trials have already begun and will continue over the next year. And so will the discussions about Nuremberg's legacy. Nuremberg, also known as the International Military Tribunal, or IMT, is heralded by many as a triumph of justice and morality, as a seminal event that ushered in a new era of international human rights, and rightly so. But in the United States, it has been remembered chiefly as an American story. In the most popular accounts of popular books and films, the US Chief Prosecutor, Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson, is the hero of the moment, insisting on a fair trial for even the most monstrous Nazi leaders. The British and the French play noble but supporting roles. The Soviets, meanwhile, come off as brutish and vengeful, and to quote one US account, as the Achilles heel of the whole process. We've been telling this same story for decades, and what has been almost completely omitted, and the popular accounts especially, is the critical contribution to Nuremberg made by Stalin's Soviet Union. Now, limited access to the former Soviet archives, especially during the Cold War, is partly to blame. But there's also a deeper issue at play, our discomfort with historical complexity. The Soviet role was complicated. The Soviets were carrying out deportations in Poland and Hungary, even as the IMT was hearing evidence against the Nazis. There were episodes involving the Soviets at Nuremberg that everyone, especially the Americans, wanted to forget, such as the Soviet effort to use the trials to blame one of their own war crimes, the Kati massacre of thousands of Polish officers, prisoners of war, on the Nazis. In a more general sense too, though, the contribution of Stalin's Soviet Union to the IMT upends the myth of Nuremberg as fully grounded in liberal ideas about justice and the law. The real Nuremberg story is messy and in my opinion also very interesting and it's also necessary because Nuremberg still matters for some it remains a kind of gold standard for international justice for others it's a travesty of justice that should never be repeated if we're going to hold up Nuremberg as a benchmark for future trials we need to understand what actually happened we need to consider the complicated role of the Soviet Union. And we need to consider the relationships among all four countries of the prosecution. There were four prosecution teams in Nuremberg, American, British, 
French and Soviet. There were four judges, one representing each country of the prosecution. The relationships among the prosecutors and among the judges and between the prosecutors and the judges are all highly revealing. We see clashes about the meaning of justice and clashes about the causes of the war. We see how important the nightlife was, how important the parties were with the endless flow of alcohol for keeping things congenial and sometimes for keeping the trials on track. And we see how Nuremberg became a Cold War battleground and how this, to take things back around to the beginning now, affected the telling of the Nuremberg story. Okay, so my aims for the talk today are as follows. I wanna set out four key arguments that I make in the book, and then I'll consider the question of Nuremberg's legacy. Okay, so, water. Argument one, without the Soviets, Nuremberg most likely never would have happened. The Soviets took up the question of Nazi criminality during the darkest days of the war, prompted by the brutality of the Nazi assault and occupation. In April, 1942, Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov published his third note on Nazi atrocities, citing evidence, and I quote, that the raising of villages and the massacre of civilians were part of a deliberate plan drawn up by the Nazi government. The same month, Soviet leaders asked the Academy of Sciences Institute of Law in Moscow to evaluate the international law perspective on rep reparations. Six months later, in October, 1942, the Soviets were out in front, publicly calling for the convening of a special international tribunal and inviting all interested governments to cooperate in bringing Hitler, Goering, Hess, and other Nazi leaders to justice. The United States and the British were slow to come on board. The US government worried about reprisals against allied prisoners of war. The British argued that the crimes of the Nazi leaders were far too serious for a trial and pushed for punishment by executive decree. The Soviets went down their own path. They created their own war crimes commission, the Extraordinary State Commission. They were the only allied power that did not participate in the United Nations War Crimes Commission, the UNWCC, which met in London from October, 1943. But even as the Soviets went down their own path, the Soviet jurist Aaron Trainin from Moscow's Institute of Law influenced the international discussion about war crimes through his writings from afar. Trainin's ideas would revolutionize the field of international law. He argued that the planning and waging of wars of aggression should be punished as crimes against peace. He also argued Nazi leaders could and should be tried for participating in a criminal conspiracy. And he challenged the defense of following orders. Train and set out these ideas and others in a book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites. And this report had actually begun as a report, as this book rather, had begun as a report for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in response to Molotov's request to research the international law perspective on reparations. And um, I got to see drafts of it at the archive of the Academy of Sciences. And again, it's really interesting to be able to follow something like this and see again, how this report becomes a book and how the book then travels a path because this book did travel a path. It made its way across Europe to Britain where it was translated into English 
and discussed by the UNWCC, the United Nations War Crimes Commission. It then crossed the Atlantic to the United States where it landed at the War Department Special Projects Branch and at the White House. Now, Trainen, he was not the only lawyer arguing for the criminality of aggressive war. But whereas many European and American lawyers expressed unease about ex post facto or retroactive law and really got all tied up into knots about it, the Soviets had no such reservations. And this was something that the OSS, the US Wartime Intelligence Agency noted in its assessment of Trainen's book with great interest. After the victory, when the other allied powers came around to the idea of an international tribunal, Trainen then too, he helped to shape its framework. He was one of two representatives that the Soviets sent to the London conference in the summer of 1945. In London, Trainen, his Soviet colleague, Yona Nikachenko, who will come up again, um, and American, British, and French lawyers drafted the Nuremberg Charter. Crimes Against Peace, this term that Trainen had coined, became one of the three categories of crimes set out in the Charter's Article 6, along with war crimes and crimes against humanity. Okay, on to argument two. Argument two, the Soviets had no idea what they had set in motion and were greatly handicapped on the international stage by the constraints of Stalinism. The Soviets took Nazi guilt as a given. They were expecting guilty verdicts down the line. They aimed to use the tribunal to demonstrate this guilt and to tell a story about Soviet suffering and heroism. They certainly did not expect the defendants to be allowed to take the stand in their own defense or to be allowed to call witnesses. Soviet expectations and aims shaped their choice of personnel for Nuremberg. Almost all members of the Soviet legal team were connected to the Soviet show trials of the 1930s. Soviet judge Yoni Nikachenko had been a judge in the Moscow trials. And in those trials, Stalin had used those trials to take down his political rivals in the 1930s. Soviet chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, had served as the prosecutor for show trials in the 1930s in Ukraine. Soviet assistant prosecutors had similar credentials. Stalin appointed Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Vyshinsky, who had been the prosecutor in the Moscow trials, to lead a secret Moscow-based Nuremberg Commission. This commission was supposed to oversee the Soviet delegation and the Soviet case from afar, from Moscow. This commission's other members were high-ranking figures in the fields of law, state security, and propaganda. The Soviets thought that the victors would control the script, just as the prosecution had done so in the Moscow trials and in the Soviet Union's own war crimes trials, including the Kharkov trial of December 1943. They were so confident of this that they initially did not bother to tell Rudenko about the secret protocols to the Soviet-German non-aggression pact of 1939. In these secret protocols, Hitler and Stalin had agreed to divide up Poland and the Baltic states. They assumed Rudenko did not need to know about this. They assumed this even though Ribbentrop, the former German foreign minister who had signed the pact, was one of the defendants. 
they were so confident of being able to control the script and of the defendants not being able to challenge evidence that they insisted on including the Kati massacre in the indictment. Now Jackson and the other Western prosecutors, they reluctantly went along with this in spite of reservations um, because Rudenko told them his hands were tied and he'd have to go back to Moscow and consult with Stalin and this would take a couple of weeks. And so they went along with it to keep the trials from being delayed. But Soviet expectations about what Nuremberg would be like actually got in their way. Now, first of all, to be fair, the Nuremberg Charter had established that the IMT would address only European access crimes. What's more, the prosecutors had agreed before the trial started to work together to keep any, let's say, awkward topics about their own countries out of the courtroom altogether. And this, by the way, um, this agreement had come at Jackson's initiative and the Soviets referred to it as a gentleman's agreement. But, and this is a really big but here, um, the Western judges, the Western judges, right, were not on board with this. The Western judges were worried about allegations of victor's justice, all the more so because Nikachevko kept insisting that guilty verdicts were a done deal. The Western judges ended up giving significant leeway to the defendants who then did what they could to put forth their own narrative about Nazism and the, the causes and course of the war. Now, the Stalinist system, I should add, hampered the Soviets in other ways too at Nuremberg. The Soviet prosecutors and judges had much less independence than their counterparts. Soviet leaders expected them to clear each and every decision with Moscow. And so the Soviet delegation smuggled documents back through secret channels to the Vyshinsky Commission, sometimes via Berlin on the way to Moscow. And the Vyshinsky Commission sent them further up the chain of command to, Mo to Molotov and sometimes to Stalin. Now, let me just say that this paper trail, um, the paper trail that all of this produced, it is an amazing source, right, for a historian. The Moscow archives have actually like, marked up copies of the indictment marked up copies of the judgment. You see Molotov and Malenkov and Stalin's handwriting on these documents. Um, and the judgment of course was not even supposed to circulate. It was just supposed to be something that the judges were discussing in, in private. So for the historian, this is wonderful. For the Soviet delegation in Nuremberg, this was not all that great at all because for the Soviet delegation, sending these documents back and forth through secret channels was an absolute nightmare. Documents were sometimes lost in transit. Directives came back to the Soviet delegation sometimes too late to be of any real use. And Nikachenko and Rudenko were left scrambling. Stalinism left the Soviet delegation unprepared in other ways too. Um, the Soviets, for one thing, they did not have enough capable interpreters or translators, um, partly because during the Stalinist terror, many German speakers were arrested and shot. The Soviets also struggled in international public relations in spite of the fact that they actually sent incredibly talented writers and artists to Nuremberg as correspondents. But the Soviets did not know how to um, hold press conferences and they apparently did not dress the part. One informant reported on this in a letter home that was really interesting to read in. And, and again, there are all of these reports that are going home with filled with details. The Soviets are they're, they're conducting surveillance on each other the whole time that we're, they're there. And so he wrote, I'll quote right here, the clothing of our female personnel is so bad 
and looks so poor that the Americans and English are making fun of them. He suggested that if the Soviet Union was going to participate in major international events like the Nuremberg trials, it was essential to pay attention also to appearances. Okay, so we've got so far, we've got the Soviet contribution to international law. We have the ways in which Stalinism got in their way. Argument three, the Soviets presented powerful proof at Nuremberg of what we now know as the Holocaust and what at the time was talked about as Hitler's final solution. Now, it's important to talk about this because the Soviet contribution is often overlooked, in part because Soviet war crimes trials, like the Kharkov trial, spoke of crimes against peaceful Soviet citizens, even when the victims were Jewish. And in part because of the Soviet Union's anti-Semitic, anti-cosmopolitan pain that was launched in the years after Nuremberg. But at Nuremberg, Soviet presentations on crimes against humanity included extensive evidence of the Nazi plan to exterminate the Jews. Assistant Prosecutor Lev Smirnov introduced shocking documents. These included a report from the commanders of Einsatzgruppe A, and I'll quote here, bragging about having fulfilled orders to eliminate the Jews to the fullest possible extent in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. These included a Polish government report stating, and I'll quote again, that 3 million Jews had been exterminated in Poland. Eyewitnesses for the Soviet prosecution also testified about the Nazi campaign to wipe out the Jews. Now, I should add that the Soviets almost did not send witnesses to Nuremberg. The Soviet security police had been screening possible witnesses for the Soviet prosecution starting in November 1945, but Soviet leaders had considered having the Soviet prosecution build its case on documents alone. But the Soviet prosecution went last. So first the Americans went, then the British, then the French. And, and while the Soviets struggled at Nuremberg, they also adapted and made course corrections along the way. They made the decision to send witnesses in January when Rudenko was back in Moscow for the holiday break, meeting with Soviet leaders, including Stalin. The Soviets ultimately sent 10 witnesses. Two of those witnesses, Avraham Sutskever and Samuel Rajman were sent specifically to testify about Nazi crimes against the Jews. Sutskever, a Yiddish poet, had fled the Vilna ghetto in September, 1943 and joined a group of partisans in the forests of Northwest Belarusia. In March of 1944, the Soviets staged a rescue operation in part because Ilya Ehrenberg had recognized him as an ideal witness survivor. Um, and they airlifted him and his wife, Fredka, out of German-occupied territory. And Suskiver had been smuggling some of his um, poetry out, which is how he came to Ehrenberg's attention. In Moscow, then Suskiver worked with Ehrenberg and other members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee to compile evidence of the Nazi murder of Jews throughout the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. The Soviet prosecution called Sutskever to the witness box in late February, 1946. And his testimony is absolutely harrowing. He speaks about the Nazi death, plot, death squads, the Einsatzgruppen, and the systematic killing of the Jews in Vilna. He also recounts the murder of his newborn son by German soldiers in the ghetto hospital. Sutskever remained standing in the witness box as if he wrote in his diary, he was saying Kaddish, 
the Jewish prayer for the dead. He considered it a matter of Jewish destiny, he also wrote, that he, a Yiddish poet, had survived to Judge Rosenberg and Frank in Nuremberg, and through them, all who had adhered to their ideology. Sutzlaver, a Jew and a partisan, understood that he was speaking on behalf of the Jewish people and on behalf of the Soviet people. His testimony was critical for the Soviets, as was the evidence presented by Smirnov. They told the story of the annihilation of the Jews while integrating it into a larger narrative about the wartime suffering of the entire Soviet people in the German occupied East. Okay. Argument four. The Nuremberg trials became an early front of the Cold War. And understanding Nuremberg as such gives us an important perspective on the post-war movement for human rights. All four powers, the United States, France, Britain, and the Soviet Union wanted to use the IMT to bring the Nazis to justice and to strengthen their international influence. They had different ideas about justice, that's for sure, in part because of their different legal systems and in part because of their different experiences of the war. And they had different and in some cases competing visions for the post-war order. The Soviets and the Americans in particular were on the collision course from the very start. The Soviets had experienced unimaginable suffering during the war. 27 million Soviet citizens had perished, 27 million. They expected the trials to be open and shut. They couldn't imagine it being any other way. The United States had had a vastly different experience of the war and was now poised to take on a more involved role in world affairs. Jackson, US Chief Prosecutor and President Truman both saw the IMT as an opportunity to model what they thought of as American values. First and foremost, strict adherence to the rule of law. The prosecution presented its case from November, 1945 through February, 1946. And during those months, tensions among the four powers were mostly kept under wraps. Now we know from Jackson's letters and his diaries, which are at the Library of Congress and absolutely fascinating to read. We know that he didn't trust the Soviets or the French actually, and that he especially resented having to work with the Soviets, but friendly relations were pretty much the norm. All the drinking helped. Um, and, and they were pretty much the norm, even as Jackson did what he could to extend American influence as much as possible over, over a large part of the case. And then in March of 1946, the Cold War just blew into the Nuremberg courtroom. On March 5th, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech, as it came to be known, in Fulton, Missouri calling for Anglo-American resistance to Soviet aggression and tyranny. The very next day in Nuremberg, the defense case began. When the Soviets got to the courtroom that morning, there were copies of the US Army newspaper, Stars and Stripes, scattered everywhere. And the Soviets talk about this moment in their memoirs, right? And, and these newspapers had the headline, Unite to Stop the Russians. And not just that, the defense attorneys 
are holding up copies of the newspapers visibly for their clients to be able to read. All of this energized the defense who upped their effort to drive a wedge between the Soviets and the Western powers. And the defense had great success in the weeks and months that followed. Gehring, Hermann Gehring in his testimony, because again, they're allowed to take the stand and to call witnesses. So Gehring, when he's in the witness box, he insists that Germany had launched a preventive war against the Soviet Union and not a war of aggression, and goes on to say that, that Hitler had lots of evidence about Soviet planning for the war. Ribbentrop, again, the former German foreign minister, again, taking the stands in his own defense, he absolutely riveted the courtroom with his description, his detailed description of the secret protocols to the German-Soviet non-aggression pact. Ribbentrop argued that if Germany was guilty of crimes against peace, then the Soviet Union certainly was as well. One Soviet informant writing home after Ribbentrop's testimony expressed alarm, and I'll quote from his telegram home here, that the, so he wrote, the Soviet Union, a country of victors, had gone to Nuremberg to prosecute the fascists and had instead become the object of their provocative attacks. This turn of events that the Nazis should be in the witness box making counter allegations against the Soviet Union, this made no sense to him at all. And the challenges to the Soviet Union kept on coming. Goering's attorney petitioned for witnesses to counter Soviet charges about Katyn. And the Western judges, outvoting Nikachenko three to one, allowed these witnesses they allowed the Soviets to present witnesses as well and a whole battle of the witnesses ensued, but the witnesses for the defense ultimately cast enough doubt on the Soviet version of events that no mention of Katyn appeared in the judgment. Now, again, the after hours socializing, including tennis and pool parties as the weather grew warmer, the judge Nikachenko, Nikachenko was apparently quite the tennis player, um, this prevented things in Nuremberg from completely falling apart. But back in Moscow, Soviet leaders interpreted all decisions by the judges that went against, the, against their interests after that, and there were many three-to-one votes against Nikachenko as part of an Anglo-American anti-Soviet plot. In the end, Nuremberg was a disappointment for the Soviets, who never expected their own actions to be subject to scrutiny on the international stage and who were expecting guilty verdicts and hanging down the line. 12 of the defendants were sentenced to death by hanging, three were acquitted, and the others, including Hess, received prison sentences. Now, notably, the Soviets still wanted more four-power tribunals, especially of the industrialists who had financed Hitler um, in part because many of them were in American custody and this was a way for them to participate in these trials. But the Americans, Jackson and the others, they are done with the Soviets after Nuremberg. And so the four powers, they went their own way and continuing then to hold their own war crimes trials, right? And the Americans are the ones who hold subsequent trials in Nuremberg, the rest of the Nuremberg trials, including several industrialist trials. Okay. So the Soviet contributions, again, and they were in, significant in terms of international law, 
in terms of the, the witnesses and the prosecution's testimony, but we also see how when we look at the relationship among all of all four powers, how this changes the story as well. So I'm gonna go on to, to my conclusions here. Okay, so what I wanna argue in conclusion is that on this 75th anniversary, we need the whole Nuremberg story. Bringing in the Soviets complicates Nuremberg's legacy. It reminds us that Nuremberg was not inevitable. It reminds us that the IMT as well was not simply a result of Western leadership and liberal idealism. Nuremberg involved endless negotiations and very difficult compromises among the four countries of the prosecution. And I actually think that this makes its achievements all the more heroic. Those achievements were significant. The IMT created a comprehensive record of the crimes of the Third Reich, and it laid down foundations for new laws and institutions devoted to the protection of human rights. But bringing in the Soviets also helps to explain why Nuremberg's promise has never been fully realized. At Nuremberg, the struggle for human rights and the Cold War became entangled. And this indeed is another one of Nuremberg's legacies. After Nuremberg, the Soviet Union and the United States each wanted to claim a leadership role as a progressive state protecting human rights. Both understood that international institutions were critical. There was gonna be no way around it with the United Nations and other institutions after the Second World War. You had to participate to have any kind of influence, right? But both and other states as well were concerned about protecting their sovereignty. The United States and the Soviet Union used the language of Nuremberg, terms like crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, genocide, to call each other out for human rights violations. But deliberations about integrating what soon became known as the Nuremberg Principles, the ideals set out in the Nuremberg Charter and in the Nuremberg Judgment, including crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, um, into a new international law code and creating a new international criminal court, those deliberations stalled over the question of enforcement. Because this is the thing, right? It's one thing to come together in an occupied country to try the leaders of a defeated state. It's another thing to agree to submit one's own citizens to the rulings of an international court. And this really is the problem that has plagued the International Criminal Court, I think, since its founding in 1998. Any international system requires governments, even if they don't share a universal understanding of the law, right, to at least believe that they have something to gain by participating. So it's interesting that I actually concluded my book on a note of optimism about Nuremberg's achievements and its legacy. But really the truth is um, that I waver between optimism and pessimism about the possibilities of international law, just depending on the day. Um, at the very least though, I think that a fresh look at Nuremberg invites a conversation about what it looks like for governments to work through significant difficulties of different and differences as well, to accomplish something important at a critical moment. And on this 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials, I think that this is a conversation that is well worth having. And so um, I'll end here and I'm really looking forward to your questions and 
I would love to talk more about the, the archives and the research process as well. So I'll, I'll wait for questions to come through and, and thank you for your attention. I'll say as the questions are coming through then, because my favorite thing to talk about is the archives, that, um, that I worked in um, five different archives in Moscow, and uh, as well as archives in the US, but really without the Moscow archives, I never would have been able to write this book that um, is working in the archives of the Academy of Sciences and the Foreign Ministry and the Party Archive and the State Archive, Garth, as well in the archive of literature and, and art that, um, that I was able to really piece together this, this Soviet side of the story. And it was especially interesting to look at the materials from those archives and then to compare them um, with the American story and, and the British story and, and to some extent the French story as well to, to try to weave things together and understand what was going on at particular moments. So. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Fran, for a fantastic talk. Uh, uh, hello, good evening, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jennifer Tischler, the Associate Director of CRICA at UW-Madison, the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. And so I'll be moderating the Q&A. And there looks like there are a few questions have come up on the Facebook chat. Um, please continue to put your questions there. Um, uh, we have one question uh, from David. Could you answer, when did the Western press talk about Katyn as a Soviet atrocity? Uh, oh, so not, not until much later. I mean, it, yeah, so, so this, is, this is later, um, later that, I mean, there's, there's discussion about it um, in the 1950s after the trial. And so I should say that there's some discussion at that point, there's a congressional hearing committee that's set up to review evidence of it. But in terms of it being, definitive as opposed to something that was probably the case, that, that would have been in the 80s. But in the 50s, there, there is an investigation. And, and again, I think it's, it's interesting. I think Katyn, in terms of, again, why four power cooperation fell apart afterwards, I think Katyn was a big reason for it, that I think this was one of Jackson's biggest regrets. Um, because the Katyn thing with the indictment, those discussions are, are it's really interesting. Again, the, the pressure to let this through and how Jackson like relented and let it through. And then the indictment is published on October 18th. And then two days later, Jackson gets information from US Army intelligence that says, yeah, we have pretty good evidence now that the Soviets did it. And mm -hmm. it's just too late. It's just mm -hmm. too late. And so, um, so there's, I, there's, it's really interesting. There's a file in the Library of Congress in Jackson's archive about Katyn, where there are clippings of these newspaper articles about the congressional hearings and some letters that are sent to him about the issue as well. And um, so, but yeah, but it's, it's afterwards that it's, um, it's, it's, it's really clear like who knew what when as well. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, looks like we're getting several more questions in. So one question, uh, do you consider the trials as an inciting incident for the Cold War? How do you feel the trials played into the timeline or the history of the Cold War? Yeah, I would say that the trials are, I, I talk about it in the book as an early front of the Cold War, that I, I think that this is a moment, especially for the Soviets, um, where it's again, there, there, there's so much else going on on the international stage at this moment too, with like with Poland and Hungary, right? But in terms of um, 
the Soviets seeing the Western powers kind of gathering together against them. If, if we see that as one moment of the Cold War, these tensions between East and West in that particular way, I, I would say that the trials themselves um, are, are part of this Cold War moment. Mm -hmm. uh, great. Another question, um, you mentioned in your talk the figure of 27 million um, fatalities, but that number only appeared in the 1980s. Under Stalin, the more accepted figure was around 11 million dead. And what role, if any, did the number of Soviet casualties play in the trials? I wouldn't say that the number of dead played a role in the trials. I, I, again, those 11 million too, it's just like, how do you even get your mind around it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, on a different um, going on a different track, you mentioned the archives in Moscow as being useful. What documents did you find to be the most useful in your research? Oh, there are so many. Um, there are so many interesting documents. So I'll talk a little bit about this. So in the, the archive of the Academy of Sciences, um, I was able to work in the files of the Institute of Law. And again, we, we knew about that Aaron Trainin had had an influence from the writings of the, the wonderful professor George Ginsburg, who wrote a, a book about this. But to be able to, to actually understand the extent of the influence and to understand the extent of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs involvement with the Institute of Law, and again, the way that to see these drafts of this report and the transcripts of the meetings, that, that was really helpful in terms of putting the story together. The Foreign Ministry Archive um, was just an incredible, it's just an incredible resource in terms of, again, in looking at the Vyshinsky files and the Molotov files. And, and that's why I was able to see some of those copies of the indictment with people's signatures, with people's handwritings and little notations and the judgment as well, and other kinds of back and forth. There's also all like an endless flow of telegrams. Just the amount of information is incredible. And these telegrams, again, reporting on the day-to-day, -day, what's happening in the courtroom, but they're also reporting on each other. Um, some of the reports that are sent back are reports in which members of the delegation are reporting that some other members of the delegation are shopping on the black market, um, where people are, some letters that they send back again, talking and complaining about the Americans who don't seem to understand the suffering of the Soviet people and, and things like the Americans chewing gum in the courtroom. So like those, they just give you a sense really of, of what's going on. The um, GARF has the transcripts of the trials, but that quote about the, the female members of the delegation being made fun of for their clothing, that was also from Garf. That was one of these really lengthy reports that was sent back um, by Mikhail Dolgopolov, who was that one of the heads of the journalists there, um, but was also just writing these very detailed reports back about kind of the day in and the day out, the problems with translators. Um, and you just get a feeling. One of the things I wanted to do with this book um, it wasn't just going to be a book about like the law part of Nuremberg, but I wanted to do what I could to like recreate a feeling about what it was like and what it would have felt like to be like members of the Soviet delegation. And so that kind of um, material was great, but so were the materials in the um, in Gali in the archive of literature and art. I was able to look at diaries, at letters of members of the, the Soviet correspondents who were there, like Roman Carmen, the filmmaker, and Vysavolo Vishnevsky, the playwright. And being able to, I mean, Carmen just writes so beautifully. And it's like, as you might imagine, like he's a filmmaker. It's, it's his descriptions of scenes are so cinematic. 
So being able to get a sense of him on his arrival like into Nuremberg, the city, and seeing like just how broken down the city is. And he recalls how during the, the, the he had before going, he had watched newsreels of Nuremberg during the rallies and like the glory days of the Nazis and then comparing that with what he sees now. Again, you just get such a feeling for things. So those documents were, so yeah, so again, um, party archives, state archives, um, Regali. Um, I was really lucky to be able to work with materials at the Foreign Ministry Archive um, that, that really just proved critical, again, in being able to put the pieces together because that's, that's where you really see Vyshinsky and Molotov's fingerprints on things. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe following up on that, you talked about getting access to the sense of the day-to-day operations of the trials. Um, so following on, did you find that the Soviet approach to Nuremberg altered their approach to domestic trials, that is within the Soviet Union, and war crimes investigations that followed the conclusion of the IMT? That's interesting. In, in, in the talks I've given, a lot of people ask about that. I mean, the thing is about Nuremberg, it was an anomaly. This was the only time, right, that they were in terms of a trial. I mean, that's not true. I should say, well, the trial in the Far East as well. So that would be interesting to see if they learned something from Nuremberg and the trials of the Far East. But in terms of the domestic trials that followed Nuremberg, they were more similar to the domestic trials that preceded Nuremberg in that they had control over the narrative, right? So Nuremberg was a place where they did not have that kind of control. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, there are two questions um, sort of uh, follow on from your talk about the, the um, greater legacy of the Nuremberg uh, trials. What is the relationship between Nuremberg and the 1975 Helsinki Accords, which gave greater emphasis to the question of human rights in Europe and the Soviet Union? Oh, that's a big question. I mean, okay. I, there, there are scholars who study that, so I, I wouldn't want to, I would say, ask them. Okay. Say, yeah, that in particular, um, there's a really good book by Arnie Weiss-Wentz that, that looks at the Soviet role in, in the Genocide Convention and the Soviet role in, he actually has two books on this, in sort of these international law deliberations later. And I think the answer to your question is in one of his books, if not in both of them. So I'll refer mm-hmm. you to him. Okay, thanks. Um, David, I'm wondering if you could help me out here. There are so many good questions and uh, I'm having a little bit of trouble sorting through them all. Um, okay, well, how, uh, because you, you, you deal with uh, two things in the book. One is uh, uh, Soviet press coverage of the trials and uh, did that change after uh, Churchill's Fulton, Missouri speech on the Iron Curtain? So it's, so it's interesting in terms of Soviet press coverage. The Soviets, they're doing press coverage, right, on two fronts. There's the press coverage that they're doing for the international stage. And that's like part of the big focus of why they send so many famous writers, just amazing writers and amazing artists, like, again, like um, like Boris Efimov, the political cartoonist. Um, and so, and then there's also the coverage that they're doing for the Soviet population back home, right? I would say that the, the press coverage really shifts after Nuremberg. And you see that happen pretty quickly. And Efimov is a really good example of thinking about how this is. Um, so Efimov, during the course of the trial, did these brilliant political cartoons. He did brilliant political cartoons like his whole career. So in the 30s, he has cartoons of the Moscow trials. Um, then before Nuremberg, he has cartoons um, 
for a while they're of the Western powers and then they're of the Nazis. At Nuremberg, there are these cartoons of the, the political cartoons of the defendants, right? But they, they, they really are focusing on the defendants, on the Nazis. After Nuremberg, it shifts and Efimov then is doing what we would consider classic Cold War cartoons. They're about Truman, they're about the Marshall Plan, right? They're about all kinds of other things. But that shift happens afterwards. While at Nuremberg, they're really focusing on Nuremberg. One thing that I will say that there is a shift in the coverage in a couple of ways that at the very beginning of the trial, there are lots of Western correspondents there. After the Americans and the British go, by the time the French and the Soviets go, there are not as many Western correspondents. And so the Soviets say that they're gonna do like more and more press coverage, right? I didn't count. I don't know if it's like more articles later than before, but that's part of what they're, they're telling themselves that they're doing as well. The other big shift is during the prosecution case, they're covering lots of stuff. They're all of the evidence, right? During the defense case, um, the, they don't cover very much of the defense case. I mean, they cover it, but they're really careful. They're not going to be covering um, what the defendants have to say in their defense. Instead, during the weeks, months really, of the defense case, they'll cover a little bit and then they'll say, well, you know, Gehring just spouted out your typical fascist propaganda. And then they'll go back and they'll do like a feature story about some of the evidence from earlier in the trials. Um, yeah, so I would say that also Jeremy Hicks has done really interesting work as well on the role of the press in the Nuremberg trials, um, has a, a couple of really good articles about this. And so I, I recommend anyone to look at that as well. Uh, then then uh, the, uh, another uh, questioner asked uh, a, a two-part question. This one's named Dahlia. She works on the, uh, she cites your uh, article from the AHA uh, earlier on. She was, uh, and I'm she, sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear? Well, the, the, this this person uh, cited your work in her masters okay. on uh, the spontaneous uh, okay. interpreters, and she uh, referred to Stupnikov, who figures prominently mm. in that part of your narrative, but, um, and uh, was struck by Stupnikov's observation that hearing about the Hitler regime, she automatically starts thinking of uh, of, Stalin, of the Stalin regime. And uh, did you get corroboration to other people in the mark on that that you see? Uh, so that'd be the first part. And the second part is, um, what's the current Russian narrative about Nuremberg? And, and there's got to be one given the approaching anniversary, which is tomorrow, I guess, is open. And, uh, yeah, tomorrow. And uh, uh, how have they adjusted their narrative, say, compared with what you would have seen uh, under, uh, I know, Brezhnev when they, when they start making the war cult? Yeah, so it's interesting, again, in terms of Stupnikova, and that, that's that's a, a wonderful, Tatiana Stupnikova's memoir of, as she was a translator at the trials, I would recommend that anyone who reads Russian to read that. It's just, um, it's so well told. And what she, she talks about at one point how during the, so they're, they're not just trying the Nazi leaders, they're also trying some of the Nazi organizations. And she talks about in her memoir uh, that so this moment when they're trying the Nazi party that she's, it reminds her of the Communist Party. Now, of course, it's a memoir and it was written after the fact. And I guess historians, right, we, we kind of take that into account. Um, but I think, again, it's, it was, it's really interesting. Um, in terms of whether other members of the Soviet, most of the other materials I worked with um, were from the time. And so they would not have commented on that kind of a thing at the time, right? Um, the other part of the question, oh, the Soviet, the, the Russian narrative about Nuremberg and how it's changing. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, 
It's interesting. I'm, I'm actually really curious. There's a big conference in Moscow happening this weekend. And so I'm, I'm eager to hear like what the, what the current narrative is. I mean, I think that um, it's heroic, of course. I mean, it's, it's absolutely heroic. And in terms of like reactions to my work too, it's sort of interesting that um, like one, one, one of the, you know, one of the first reviews on Amazon was like someone who was very angry that I talked about Katine and that I talked about the secret protocols and said that that wasn't true, right? So there's a resistance to, to sort of bringing in um, the secret protocols into Katine and to kind of keep the narrative to, like a heroic and an uplifting one. Um, so I'm curious to, with this new conf with the conference right now. The thing I'll mention too, you know, when I talk again about the narrative of the Western, this is a, a Western narrative. And I wrote this book kind of with that Western audience in mind, right? The book is really geared towards um, English language readers. The Russians have been doing really interesting work on the trials, um, Natalia Lebedeva and some other Russian scholars have put together these amazing document collections. And so I would say, again, for anyone who reads Russian, like look at those materials, right? They're amazing. And um, and yeah, she and I were kind of overlapped in, in the archives a bit, right? So so there, there there's this kind of um, more more and more information. Um, although I'm not, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there was a moment when there was a lot of information that was um, coming out, and um, I was really lucky, I think, to do my archival research in 2005 and 2006. Um, but that it's, I think from what I've heard, it's, um, it's much more difficult. I actually heard at a CSET, the conference this weekend, that one of the files in one of the collections in GARF that was really important for me, um, on 81, 8131, I think the procurator's office one is closed now and you can't get in there at all. So I, again, um, yeah, and I don't know what that will mean in terms of how the narrative changes over time. Yeah, that Amazon criticism was fascinating simply because the Russian government published the secret documents on Katyn about 15 years ago, as I recall. Uh, I think Marina was here visiting when it happened. Yeah. And, uh, and the secret protocols have long been uh, common knowledge in, in Russian, uh, in, among Russian scholars, anyway. But there was a, another uh, question, which is good because it also goes to the heart of a lot of what the book addresses. Is, why do you think the Soviets so greatly underestimated the way the Westerners would handle the concept of trial and uh, of juries and fair trial, right? And allowing the defense to, uh, to make their case. So I think we have to put ourselves back in that moment of the war. And this war, again, to, to think about the, the extent of Nazi atrocities and just think about the extent of the suffering and what had happened. And to remember that in the United States, initially there was the Morgenthau plan, right? Initially there was a plan to absolutely like dismember Germany and some early discussions by the Western states as well involved like just shooting the Nazi leaders. And so the Soviets, when they were talking about a, a trial, they really thought that everyone was on the same page. Um, it's not just that, is it? So the trial part but as well. The other thing that um, ended up being an issue, the Soviets initially wanted a trial for reparations. Um, that sort of got settled at the Potsdam conference. And so it wasn't as big a deal once Nuremberg started, but the kinds of reparations that they were talking about included what they talked about as labor reparations, 
right? Forced labor. But the Soviets weren't the only ones who were asking for labor reparations. The French and the British were asking for labor reparations too. And so um, after Yalta, the Soviets thought that they had gotten, like Stalin thought that, that Roosevelt was on board with this. And, um, and that's one of those things that would be nice to know more about what was happening behind the scenes. Um, but so then afterwards, and some, in some ways that there's the shift then from FDR to Truman um, and the knowledge about what had happened at Yalta and other conferences that got either kind of lost or buried. Um, so things shifted. Um, and again, the Soviets um, were surprised by this. They, they, they really initially thought that there was much more agreement about what Nuremberg would look like. Good. And, and, and another, uh, another question came in uh, from somebody earlier on. Uh, uh, how would you react to somebody proposing that you frame Nuremberg as a very early uh, instance of what comes to be called in the last 10 years lawfare? Well, there's a, a book that's been written about that too um, by uh, Christine. Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely blanking on her name. And if anyone out there in Facebook world remembers the name of the author of this book, put it out there, please. Um, because there's actually a, a, a book on like lawfare that looks at the Soviet and Aaron Chayinin's ideas as well. So um, I should let that particular author, since this is like her whole thesis, um, address that. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think again, like what was the purpose of the Nuremberg trials, right? The purpose of the Nuremberg trials, it was to bring the Nazis to justice. It was to say never again. It was to put together a narrative of what had happened to compile and the, and the information that has been compiled, the information that's out there about the Third Reich, the crimes of the Third Reich, the, the course of the war, all of that. Like we have that record as a result of that particular effort, right? But there were these other things that all of the participants wanted to have happen as well. It was also about taking one's seat at the table of the victors. It was about asserting one's own country's values as well. Um, so in, in, in Nuremberg, it was, I think, a really important moment of international relations. Um, and, and yeah, I will probably leave it at leave it at that and, and let the warfare one. Yeah, slides. So apologies. So um, I suppose, uh, I, I'll uh, ask the, uh, I can ask the last question. Uh, uh, and it's going to be in a way. It's going to be out of left field, but uh, uh, but in an unsurprising way, as far as you're concerned. Uh, you know, while they're while they're meeting in London and the rest of it, there's a, a, a safer clerk or a lower clerk in the uh, Soviet embassy in Ottawa who uh, turns himself in as the uh, as as the contact for a, a vast network of uh, intelligence operatives, a lot of sleepers uh, scattered throughout North America, and this leads to a scandal in Canada, but eventually morphs into uh, basically the Red Scare and McCarthyism and that. And is the OSF, do you run across any references to the Gruzenka affair in the uh, in, in Jackson's or uh, information or the, the uh, other people on the American side taking place or taking part in the trials? Uh, thinking of conditioning factors of how this, how this becomes one of a series of fronts in what by the Berlin airlift, airlift is going to be an out and out, well, out and out cold war. But uh, you get beyond uh, beyond just the conflict of trial. Are you getting any information from other sources that are, that are coming to the American and British delegations of uh, other forms of Soviet espionage? 
I I haven't seen espionage I mean, in, in those there could be right. Yeah. Um, it certainly wouldn't have been in the Russian files that I looked at. I would imagine right, and just in yeah. terms of certain things, like um, and and not in any of the American files that that I that I looked at. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just answer a different question. I, guess. <laughs> I think that, that the, this question of um, of espionage, right, and um, informing, and the Soviets, um, they there's a there's a wonderful scene in Boris Efimov's memoirs where he talks about the trials and sitting around again and and drinking with other members of the Soviet delegation in their hotel room, and he talks about how they're always shouting curses at at the phone because they expect that it's bugged and they expect that there'd be so it's like, you know, down with your atomic bomb and, you know, they'll shout the curses in Russian and in English. Um, because of course this Nuremberg is in the American zone. Um, and, and the Soviets are also there, they're convinced that they're being followed. They're convinced that they're being followed by members of American intelligence. Um, but, you know, but also they're also, whether that's the case or not, we, we know that they're also being followed by the Soviet security forces. So, and, and they're also just, again, all of the reporting on each other is, um, yes. it's just fascinating, I think, so. Well, I guess, I guess there's one last question. It'll be more ad rem, I promise. Is that, uh, one of the members of the audience wanted to know, uh, this conference is going on in Moscow starting tomorrow. Uh, do you know who's holding it or what the name of the conference is? Or? I, I, it is part, it's partly being held by, um, it's by the government. So this, this is an official, an yeah. official government conference. And yeah, there, I think there's some involvement of, of scholars on a couple of panels, but it is a, um, it is an official conference, which I think is partly why it will be especially interesting to see um, again, like what, what this, because again, to me, that's one of the, the really interesting things. It's, it's what happens in the trials, but it's also like, how does the story of the trials get told? So yeah. Oh, great. Fran, thank you so much. And thank everybody who's out there, I'm assuming, in the, virtually out there, uh, for uh, taking the time. I hope you found it as uh, fascinating as I did. And I, I've, I've read the book and I, I still enjoy it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, oh, and this, is, this is what the book looks like. Yeah, but by the nice way. Nice and yeah. read. Of course, it has to be read. So, I mean, read as in the color and read as in read it. No, so. And again, it's gift giving season and be very timely present on the 75th anniversary. Thanks, David. <laughs> so thank you, Fran. Thanks to Jennifer and Zach for uh, setting all this up. And thank you all, thanks to all of you for, uh, well, coming as a, a bit too literally a sort of emotion. So thank you for your attendance and your very good questions. And uh, uh, good luck in your next Zoom call. Yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk talk about Nuremberg today. And uh, yeah, have a good day, everyone.